The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 198 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for checking in with us again this week. We really appreciate it. We've got such a fun conversation for you today. My guest, Sean Tucker, is an incredible uh, teacher. He's a scholar. He's an author. He has a new book, and he's just so much fun and such a brilliant guy. Uh, This was one of those conversations where five minutes in, I felt like I had known Sean for years. He just has this great way of putting people at ease, and he's so bright and so brilliant, and yet he puts out concepts that are so easy to understand, and I just loved getting to know Sean, and I need to throw out a special thanks uh, to Peter Breinholt. And, uh, of course, you know Peter Breinholt, one of the most uh, talented musicians uh, and singers that you'll ever hear. Peter is just an amazing guy. If you want to go back and hear our conversation with Peter, I had to go back and check. It was episode 19. Here we are on episode 198. Peter was four years ago, but uh, genuinely not only a, a very talented man, but one of the nicest guys I know in Peter. Uh, he and Sean were... Uh, out on the mission together and our old friends, and I really appreciate Peter reaching out to me and introducing me to Sean. And coming up this week in my Latter-day Life, people that I meet on the shuttle. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And my guest today on the Latter-day Lives podcast, he is a teacher, he is a writer, he is the author of an incredible new book. We're going to talk about all these things. Sean Tucker, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm super excited about being here. We're going to hear all about uh, all the things you do and your new book. Uh, But first of all, we got to get to know you. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and where you grew up. All right. So uh, I was born in Ogden. And uh, when I was really young, parents moved to California and then Third grade, second, third grade, we moved to Virginia outside of DC. Mm. So I grew up, I grew up out there, and um, that's where I that's where I spent all my years growing up. Loved it out there. Awesome. We we have listeners all around the world. Ogden is uh, just barely north of Salt Lake City, so you you technically are Utah native, uh, though. Yes. Sounds yes. like not too long. And and then Virginia, whereabouts were you in Virginia? So I was in Virginia, just outside of DC. Mm. Um, the town's called Sterling, but uh, it, that's you know it's 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 all that whole Northern Virginia area. All right. So growing up, what were you what were you into? Um, let's see. So uh, I grew. Up, I loved to play soccer. I um, one of my favorite things is I spent I spent a few years as the steak DJ at the Oakton Steak Dances. Nice. Um, there in Vienna, Virginia, and and that's where the building was, and it was. It was, I loved it. It was amazing. It was in the eighties, which was the best time to be a church DJ. Of course. Uh, so we played the Smiths and new order and stuff from Prince's purple rain. And of course it all had to end with stairway to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I used to do the same. And I think it's important that our listeners uh, who are a little bit younger know you weren't pressing buttons. You were getting pressed no. wax. 
Yes. And throwing down the vinyl on uh, the record players. So. Yes. And we we had one of the record players with two record two record players on each side and a fader. Coffin. And yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so you'd go, you'd dance, and then you have to run and just hop up on the stage before the song ended so you could get the other one going. It was awesome. Yeah. What awesome times. Yes. So I'm assuming you were raised in the church then? Yes, I was. My parents have always been active my whole life. Um, I'm the oldest of six. And Tuckers would join the church and cross the plains, and a bunch of them ended up in Fairview and then up in, uh, up in Ogden. So now you being a teacher, were you a great student when you were growing up? No, I wasn't. <laughs> really? I would have guessed I you were. No, I wasn't a great student. I was, I, so when, when we had, when we had our second daughter, um, she had trouble reading and we're like, mm, what's up with this? So we, um, we didn't take her to be tested. We went to go see somebody and uh, the, the reading specialist is like, yeah, she's probably a little dyslexic. And mm-hmm. so my wife's like, oh, okay, let's not tell her. Um, so we didn't, we just worked with her, um, and talked about all these reading strategies and, and, and I was like, wait, doesn't everybody read like that? So yeah, I'm a little dyslexic as well. So it was hard for me to read in school. Um, you know, I, I, I did okay, but I also had this penchant for procrastination. So no, I wasn't, I, I think I, I wanted, I mean, I, I wanted to be a teacher cause I really like attention. I think that's what that's <laughs> the best answer I've ever heard for becoming a well, teacher. Well, it's a combination of that. And, you know, part of me would like to do stand-up comedy, um, okay. but teaching allows you to do that with an audience with extremely low expectations and, <laughs> and incredibly low standards. It is, it is just beautiful. And I regularly remind my college students that if they don't laugh, I can give them an F. So um, it's, <laughs> They're it's motivated. A, it's very different are. from a club. A yes. club when, when people oh. pay to get into a club, they don't want to oh. laugh. So no, they don't. And they they're crabby and <laughs> yeah. No, 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 you got to win them over, not students. I mean, <laughs> as far as as far as being like an entertaining professor, it's like in the land of the blind, the one-eyed guy is king. I mean, <laughs> you do not have to be, you do not have to be that good. And yeah, hey, you're the only one. You're it. Absolutely. Yeah. Folks, for go. the next hour, I'm it. You yes. can laugh or not, but I'm it. I'm I'm yeah. all that's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so, so I, you know, I had in high school, well, in school, my whole life, I, I have pretty bad ADD. And, you know, back when you and I were younger, we're close to the same age. Uh we no one knew anything about it. You know, did you I I I heard from a lot of teachers that I just didn't apply myself. I would I oh wasn't my gosh. I wasn't trying. Did you hear if that? I had a nickel. If I had a nickel every <laughs> time I heard that, holy cow. Yes, I did. And I was convinced that it was just like, well, I'm just too lazy or too distracted. Yes. Or I just, you know, and so, yeah. And, and so actually, so this was a big deal because when I got to BYU, started, sorry to skip ahead. Um, yeah, no. And after I got married, my plan was to teach high school English. Mm-hmm. And uh, my wife was like, well, you should teach college. And I'm like, well, I could never do that because they know so much stuff. And like, I could never do that. And she's like, we go on Christmas vacation. And the second day of vacation, your nose is back in a book. Like you, you can do this. And, and, yeah. and it was all because, you know, high school was such a struggle and there was so much procrastination. And, but then I got to college and it was just, I don't know, a, cl- a combination of it clicking and, and other sorts of things. And it was just, yeah. yeah. So. 
you kind of develop a toolkit. Yeah, I remember when I was young and a teacher would say, Sean, you, you don't pay attention. And I said, uh, I'm sorry, what was that? <laughs> um, that was the, <laughs> that was how I was in school. So, um, yeah, it's tough. So now, now you make your way into high school, you're DJing. Are you a big music guy? Um, I really, I really like music and being in, in that area was a, was a wonderful thing. I mean, I went to see Journey and U2 and New Order and I went to see the Smiths. And so that was always, that was just really fun. And awesome. I, I, I liked music and I liked art and I liked clothes and I liked the girls and attention and attention and attention, kind of all <laughs> those things in that order. All right. So going through high school uh, after that, what came, what came next? So, um, so I'm the oldest of six. And um, again, we we lived in Virginia, really, really great parents, active uh, members of the church. And um, I guess, I, I don't know, I, I was probably 12 or so, maybe a little younger. Mom and dad sort of announced that, that we were going to be a foster family. And what had happened was mom was just reading the paper and she saw an ad where they were asking for a foster family. And mom was a neonatal nurse. And um, there was a baby that had trisomy 18 and trisomy 21 is down syndrome and trisomy 18 is something similar, but it's actually, it's, it's a little, a little more serious. Uh, a lot fewer of these babies are even born. So, um, so they needed a family. And so uh, they, they can, they can get you prepped pretty fast if they need a foster family. So, so we had a baby that joined our family and her, her family was Egyptian and um, and we just, it was, it was amazing. I mean, she had, she, she lived with us over a year, but she was never, she wasn't any bigger than like an infant. She could never speak at all. And she was always just, that's how she was. And she was feisty. And, um, but we, you know, we, we considered her celestial, you know, we, we, we just thought here's a spirit who's here on earth as extra credit. Yeah. Just checking in. Yeah. And so it was just, Every day Beautiful. with her was just like a blessing for us. And, and it was, it was a big deal. And then, um, and, and then um, I was there the day that she died. She died in mom's arms and um, it was, it, it was tough, but it was wonderful. It was, you know, a lot of learning about life and death and the plan. And, and, and it was, it was, it was a real, it was a real blessing for us. And then, wow, what an experience. When I got back from my mission, we actually, we, my parents had got, permission from the first presidency to have her sealed to us. Oh. So, um, so, so now it's, I'm Sean, I'm the oldest, Sean, Amy, Stacy, Dina, Mohammed, Eldak, Alex, and Nathan, you know, <laughs> typical, typical Mormon family. <laughs> <laughs> like all families. <laughs> that is so amazing. What a beautiful thing. That's the gospel. What yeah. you just described that that's the gospel. Yeah. And it was, Part of what was such a miracle for us was, I mean, we got to know her family somewhat. Her parents were just not in a place where they could, they could help this child. And mom was a neonatal nurse, you yeah. know, so, so she could do it. But, but when Dina died, uh, they had a traditional Muslim funeral for her. Mm. And um, we have friend, uh, friends in our ward um, th- that were Muslim or that were Muslim before they joined the church or some were still Muslim. And so they went with my folks to this to the funeral and sort of explained the things as it was going along. Beautiful. And um, and it was a big deal for us to learn about Islam at the time and you know to understand her culture and and all those sorts of things. So 
It was. It was a huge it was, blessing. It was. And part of that huge blessing was, it was, it was nice to grow up in Northern Virginia because um, there was, there were enough youth, but there was few enough of us that, you know, there was just lots of variety and lots of different people. And, you know, there were Muslims and Hindus and all that stuff like that. So that was, that was another great blessing. Yeah. Huge. So you get done with all of that. And uh, I know you ended up heading out on a mission. Did you go out on a mission when you were 19? Sure did. Yep. I just, just a few weeks past my 19th birthday went in right before Christmas, which was a terrible idea. Yeah, I I did pretty close to the same. Were so when you got called to Santiago, mm-hmm. uh, what was your response? How did you feel about going to Chile? Um, I think Chile's a food. Uh, <laughs> it's far. Yeah, um, and it it was really interesting for me because I didn't I didn't know the political situation, and um, I don't know what what political information you got at the MTC, but we got a really intricate formal lesson, which was don't ever talk about politics. That was it. That was all, (laughs) that was the whole, you know? And so I didn't know about the U S involvement in the overthrow of the Allende democratically elected government or anything like that. Yeah. (laughs) And so I got there and, and as, as Peter Breinholt, you know, described in his podcast with y'all it was a crazy hugely historic time. Uh, It was incredibly tense with people deciding whether Pinochet was going to stay in power or not. And um, I mean, this was, I was there when there were still being chapels, chapels being bombed in Santiago. Um, And, you know, so this, it was, it was really tense and frightening. And, you know, we would get people who would, I mean, you know, you, you hear this too. I mean, you're only there for a few weeks before you learn what this phrase means. Um, son de la CIA. Uh, you're from the CIA. <laughs> and we would, yeah. We yeah. Would hear, and it's just like, yeah, I'm from the CIA. FME, FME. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm here spying on your neighborhood. Uh, they would <laughs> yell that in the streets. Yes. They would yell that yeah. at us. You were there at a much more oh. uh, tense time. I mean, by the, I, I was there yeah. four years after you. And, and it was by then, you know, Pato Elvin was the president. There was a president and, yes, you know, yeah. Pinochet was gone, but we, people would drive by and they would yell FBI at us. They were convinced. Oh yeah. We, I remember, especially around the time of the plebiscite, we were on a bus that was going to the mission office and we had to go through the center of Santiago. Um, and we, we, our bus ended up in the middle of this huge right, left, um, excuse me, center left rally. So there's all these hammer and sickle flags and all this stuff. And it was, it was really tense and being a white North American in a suit who can't hide his Americanness, you know, yeah. sitting on the micro. I was like, this is where I die. This is, this is, this is, yeah. kind of it. so it, it, it was. was, I don't know about for you. It was, for me, it was very difficult because you talk to one person and they would be telling you how Pinochet was the devil was the worst person on earth whatever. And then you'd go to the next house and the neighbors next door would say, Pinochet saved Chile. Our, our money was worthless before him. He had to do what he had to do. And now it's funny because I understand it better in America. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Sean, so this is, so in, in this, in the book that I, this, my humility book, there's a section in the book about talking with members about politics 
And that's how I start the chapter. I'm like, I know it's tense to talk about politics here, but in Chile, where you had, we were teaching somebody whose family had been like rounded up, yeah. uh, you know, at, at the time of the coup. And, you know, he'd seen a lot, firsthand, a lot of violence. And then we were living with another family who, you know, the, the coup meant that they kept their extra house and that brought law and order and justice. And I remember, you know, you're, you're in your ward and people would come up to the missionaries and they would say, who should I vote for? I, you know, so-and-so who I really love and respect is voting yes. And so-and-so is voting no. And I just don't know what to do. And, and so, you know, as missionaries were just like, I think you should pray and read the book of Mormon. <laughs> do, do you know anyone you can share this message with? Yeah, really? <laughs> How about that? And can uh, we get more alpha jores, please? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I haven't had an alfajore in a long time. Oh no! Oh yeah, best cookies, man. That was Those good. Are, yeah. yeah, I could I could talk chili for a long time, but we'll move on. You come home from your mission, and uh, where'd you go from there? So I did what every good LDS boy from the East Coast does, and I went to UC Provo, found a girl from California, married her, and drug her back east. <laughs> Uh, so, <laughs> so, so, uh, so I got married. Um, and like I'd said, I was planning on teaching high school. Um, but my wife was so encouraging of me to go get a PhD and teach college. And, um, and her encouragement with some prayer was what really convinced me that I could, I could do that. What so, is your, um, what is your doctorate in? It's in humanities, mm. which is like having a degree in jeopardy. I mean, just what exactly is this? I was really, I, I was like, what even, even when I was deciding, I was like, what is a degree in humanities? Yeah, um, what is, what is the real like study? Like define a degree in humanities. It's, it's a degree for us people who like the arts and who have ADD. It's like, well, I want to do some literature. I want to do some music. I want to, I've written, I've written scholarly articles on Radiohead, um, I've written, I have a book about the seven deadly sins. Um, I, I just, I just, it just gives me a chance to just study whatever I want to do. So can, essentially it's a degree in being a Renaissance man. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And what I love to do is, is hear people in lots of different scholarly conversations and hear the ways that their conversations can overlap and bring them together. Fascinating. Yeah. So and interesting. They pay me to do it. They pay me to do it. <laughs> All right. So other people who get degrees in the humanities, uh, what other, what, I mean, other than teaching, what other career paths does that open up? So my degree is specifically humanities. Most, most people get a degree, you know, like Peter's degrees in Spanish and, you know, they're, they're in the humanities, but a lot of times, you know, it's in history or it's in art history or something like that. And, and again, it's usually to teach, I would say the bulk of them are to teach. Um, and people find other sorts of paths, but but yeah, that, that seems to be most of them. All right, so you end up graduating. Um, yep. Now, had you started having children by the time you graduated? So <laughs> this was well timed. Um, first month of grad school, we had our first child. Um, wow. Yeah, C-section. Mm. Um, and uh, so that was at Florida State. That's where I got my master's and my PhD. And um, yeah, so we graduated in 93 and she was born in September, last day of September of 1993. And, um, and 
it was an incredibly, like I was taking three grad classes. I was teaching two sections of Spanish. Um, and, um, and I didn't have time for anything. It was like, it was, it was, it was incredibly busy time. We were very happy. Florida state won the national championship and Charlie Ward won the Heisman trophy. Yeah. Um, I remember that. Yeah. And, but it was, I mean, it was, it was the other thing we were, we were crazy poor. Um, but my wife is a genius and she saved $3 for every $1 I earned. And uh, we happened to find ourselves in an apartment complex with lots of other, you know, members of the church, you know, young families. And it was, it was, it was amazing. We, it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience, Met lots of met lifelong friends there. Um, and so, and, and we were really blessed. And then a couple of years later, we had our second child and, and, um, and then, and then I, I finished um, and went and got my first job in Oklahoma. So you went from Tallahassee to Oklahoma? <laughs> yes. And I'll tell you, when, when we were doing our undergraduate, they're like, oh, so you're going to grad school. Uh, yeah, you're going to Florida. Oh, Florida sounds great. And then we're in Florida. And like, so you got a job? I said, like, yeah, I got a job. I was like, where are you going? Oklahoma. Oklahoma. And inevitably, they would sing that musical to oh stop 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 and and, and, i mean we're going to oklahoma um it's just a place where it's like do people go there on purpose um and so yeah so that was where my first job was and again we we were small state school um in oklahoma and we just met wonderful amazing people it was in tahlequah which is the capital of the cherokee nation and um and loved it there um and then we were there for three years and um, I applied for this job here at Elon. And on the plane, I was like, oh, this is a lateral move. I don't know why I'm doing this. Then I got here to Elon. I was like, no, this is not a lateral move. It's a, it's a small private East coast. And it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. It's all, all red brick, white trim, just beautiful. So going back to Oklahoma for a minute, Lots of members of the church in Oklahoma. The church is actually stronger in Oklahoma than I think a lot of people think, but also one of the most beautiful places. Like I've gotten to spend a little bit of time there. I think one of the most underrated states in the country. Like it's an amazing place. Yeah, we we had a really great experience there. When we moved there, there was also a lot of young families who'd moved into the ward. We we were on the we were near the Arkansas border. As a matter of fact, Arkansas was where our our stake was we were part of an arkansas stake and so we would travel through the foothills of the ozarks to get there and yeah um, yeah it was it was lovely there was there was i don't know there, there was lots of space there was lots of land I, yeah. I was convinced that the state motto was enough land to shoot your gun and not hit anybody um that was <laughs> that's what if, if, a lot of people there they they like their space yeah so. Tw- twice a year i fly into tulsa and drive into bentonville because oh. the flights into Bentonville are just way expensive. <laughs> it's very expensive to fly. So I fly into Tulsa and drive out to Bentonville. And just every time it's breathtaking and well, sunset. I, amazing. I hate to break it to you, but that is the most beautiful part of Oklahoma. And the, the rest of the state can be little less beautiful. <laughs> well, at least that part of it is absolutely it is gorgeous. gorgeous. All right. Yeah. So tell us about Elon. So Elon is um, small, private. I've been here since 2000. Um, when I got hired, everybody was really nice. And um, students were just fabulous. And the school was really generous and really transparent. And I thought that it must be the firm. 
I'm like, this must be run by the mafia because it just seemed too good to be true, you know? Um, and, um, you know, I was like, well, the honeymoon's going to be over and then I'm going to find out, you know, and uh, apparently the, the honeymoon has never ended for me. I still absolutely love it here. Um, we, it's, it's very transparent. Um, and one of the things is that everywhere I've ever taught, I, I really enjoy teaching and I do a good job. And I, I have always got awards for my teaching. I've never got any kind of award at all at Elon. And the reason for that is because it's just, there are so many incredible instructors here, just so talented. And it's such a pleasure to be around them because you have a question and you ask, well, what about this? And they'll have really, really good answers and just doing amazing things. And so when I got here, I said to the students, okay, so who are some of your favorite instructors? And they would rattle them off. And then I would say, why? And I would ask them why. And so I just... I just started to steal ideas. I started to hang out with them and just, I would say, what's your favorite assignment? And, and there was just always amazing, amazing things. I mean, it's like, it's like my favorite English soccer team is Arsenal. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I feel like being at Elon is like being on Arsenal. And it's like, I don't play every game and I'm not constantly in the first rotation, but just being on the team is, is an honor. So when, when did you write your first book? So my first book is an anthology about the seven deadly sins. Um, and um, so I put that together. Hmm, when did that come out? I don't, I don't know. I don't remember when it came out, 2012, I think. Mm. And then, um, and then I wrote a book um, that's a scholarly book about pride and humility. And um, what had happened was I got a, I got a grant in 2010 to develop a new course. And the course is called pride, humility, and the good life. And um, it was was just such a pleasure to teach. We we would do literature. We would we would look at literature. We would look at film. We would look at um, philosophy and art and music and all these just different things to talk about humility. And um, so so I did that. And in the course of doing that, you know, I developed some scholarly ideas about it. The grant paid for me to do a presentation in Paris and a presentation in Madrid and. A, presentation in Boise. No, not Boise. I'm just kidding on that. Um, <laughs> where, where everyone goes, Paris, Madrid, Boise. It's perfect. So, so um, and so I, you know, I, I put the ideas together and, and published it in a book and, um, and it's a, it's a nice scholarly book. And I mean, all five of us that have read it have really enjoyed it. Um, it's really good stuff. Um, I, sh- I should have put in it all my deepest, darkest secrets, you know, because, because I know they'd never be found there that are on my syllabi. Um, just so, and, and actually, you know, like my, my daughter has a copy and I, I was over to house. I'm looking at it. I start to read it. I'm like, this is good, but I can see how nobody else can read this. <laughs> just, All right. So is there something funny to writing a book about humility that not a lot of people read? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, having a humbling experience about writing a book about humility. Yeah, like, it is. Like, but, wouldn't it defeat the purpose if it were number one on the New York Times bestseller? Well, yeah, and 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 now that I have this book, you know, uh, this humility book that's written for members of the church, it's just like I'm a humility expert. Oh, it's just, <laughs> it is, it, it is all sorts of a mess. Oh, as a matter of fact, one of my colleagues, he gave, um, he gave his kids money for Christmas, and he said, "Buy me a book that you think I'll like," and he's like, 
two of my kids bought your book, Sean. Um, and he said, I'm sure some of them bought it, you know, because of our connection, but he's, but, but he said, I'm sure some of them also thought, ah, dad could probably use this. <laughs> I love it. Right, so here's a question about, you know, you're teaching, you're, you're teaching these courses that are very, when you're dealing with art, film, literature, you know, again, very, you're, you're a Renaissance man. It would seem as though religion might be a tricky fit for some people within the confines of all of this. Have people questioned you on that? Has that ever come up? Yeah. And and I see what you mean, because I mean, on one side, um, the academy seems very secular, um, very like, okay, this is, you know, this, this, we're just going to, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to allow like faith and superstition to clog, you know, the things that we're doing. Um, and there, there definitely can be people who, who sort of question that. What, what actually happens though, is that my actual experience is that people who, people who actually spend a little bit more time um, end up with a, with a view that all these different perspectives have a value. Um, and so, you know, the, the teachers and the scholars that I get to work with, they, they tend to just see like, oh, like, this is something I've never considered. Um, tell me all about it. Um, and one of the things that I find is that um, in, in some ways, it's, you can sort of connect it with Islam, right? So, so, for example, my students will say to me, okay, Dr. Tucker, because I tell them the first day of class that I'm Mormon. Um, and so inevitably somebody will during the semester say, so what do you think of Book of Mormon, the musical? And I'm like, okay, so I have a three-part answer because, you know, I'm a, I'm a professor. <laughs> um, on one, um, one answer number one is I know that um, oh, answer number one is I'm sort of grateful that it exists because we couldn't have the Quran, a musical. Um, it's just, it's just still yeah, too right. Volatile. Yeah, it's still too volatile of a thing in our culture. And so on one side, it shows that as Mormons, we're kind of accepted, you know? Yeah. Um, part two is, um, you know, when you watch the, the musical itself and then the South Park episode, Meet the Mormons, they all kind of have the same theme, which is like, okay, Mormons have some crazy beliefs, but they're good people. You know, yeah. at the end, at the end, they're good people. And, um, and my students, they really nod their head at that. Like, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just kind of making fun of this crazy stuff, but they're good people. And then I say, my third response is this. Um, you can't separate the people from their beliefs, right? My beliefs, I, I understand this, right? But we're not just good people who have crazy beliefs. We are good people because of our beliefs. Mm. Uh, they, they transform us. They, they make us who we are. Um, and so, you know, we're fine with people joking about sort of things, but, but at the end of the day, um, these beliefs are, are sacred to us. So, and so, wow. it's, yeah, it's nice. And so, you know, students are like, oh, okay, it's a good answer. I see that with like Jewish scholars that I know, um, Muslim scholars that I know, they, they're all just, they're, they're centered. They know where they're at and they're nice and clear about, about yeah. it. And it, 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 it works. I mean, you, and you know, from doing stand up that, a huge part of the battle is just confidence. Right. If you can, if if you have, if you can get up and you have confidence, you can rely on your material and rely on your experience. Then you can just be at home. And yeah. um, you know, so ha- doing this a long time, you know, it's it's it, it's it's pretty natural. 
you've done a ton of study about humility. What, what, what do we get wrong and what have you learned that, that, that maybe we could all learn about humility? Give us a little bit of a bite of your book. Okay. So, um, so I'll, I'll give you a bite of it. Um, you know, one of the things that we often do is the pride cycle. And uh, I think this is great. Um, it's really insightful. It's really useful. And, um, you know, we can see how, you know, we can see how people are successful and they'll turn their back on the Lord and then, and then they'll fall into things. Um, but one of the problems with that diagram is that it's pretty pessimistic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, there's really nothing you can do. It, it's pride just seems from that diagram, it seems, it seems inevitable. And honestly, I think that because we see that diagram, we do think that that everyone who's really successful, eventually pride is going to hit them and they're going to, you know, I mean, we just, we just, we just do that. And I think that it's because of the diagram really. And so, so for example, if you're like, there's a, there's a verse in Helaman where it talks about, um, you know, these people who are proud and they're persecuting the humble. Well, then it says that the humble actually, they, be, they prayed and fasted and they became firmer and firmer in their faith and and stronger and stronger in their humility, mm. um, and so and that's that's not on the diagram, you know that that doesn't fit in the pride cycle. No, not at all. So in the book, um, there's a there's an alternative to the pride cycle, and it's it's so it's it's a figure eight. It's two circles on top of one another. At the center, where the two circles meet, is a star, and that's the choosing point. So the so two circles. So at the choosing point, you can choose to be proud or you can choose to be humble right? If you choose to be proud, then you choose enmity, which is seeing others as the enemy, right? And that's what, that's what President Benson in his talk on pride, he says, that's the core, quoting Lewis. It's seeing others and seeing God as the enemy. Well, when you see God and others as the enemy, you, you become competitive. And you live a life of competition and conflict. And competition and conflict inevitably bring isolation and fear. And especially from God, you know, we, we, we become isolated from God, we become afraid, and all of these punishments ensue. So it's like a circle. When you choose to, to be proud, you go down uh, on this figure eight. So you're at the choosing point at the center. When you choose pride, you go down and you go in counterclockwise around the circle. First, you choose pride. Then inevitably with that comes competition and conflict then becomes comes isolation and fear as you go around the circle and then all the cursings that are mentioned. Well, going around the circle, that puts you back in the choosing point, right? Then you end up back in the middle of the figure eight. Mm. So you can choose to be proud. You can choose to be even more proud. Nihor is sort of like this. You know, then he, he's more and more an enemy to God. Eventually he's blaming other people. Um, you know, he sees himself as a victim and it just it just gets worse and worse and worse. But the other alternative is to choose humility, right? Which is to choose to see God and to see others as a friend. And when you choose that, you, you, you inevitably choose, like, you choose connection. Um, and you, you choose, you know, you choose friendship. Um, and so when you choose friendship and connection, then blessings come with that, right? Um, just, I don't know, a, a sense that you belong, a sense that you're, that everything is right in the world, um, a, a connect, you know, feeling at home with other people, um, even if they're different from you. And those bring all these blessings. And, and 
obviously material blessings can be part of that, but it's just lots of blessings. But that you go around that circle. So that's the top circle. You're going to go around that one clockwise, you know, through through um, through humility and friendship, connection and blessings. But again, then you're back at the choosing point. All of our lives, we're at this choosing point. We get to choose. Are we going to choose enmity and pride or are we going to choose friendship and humility? Um, and so this diagram sort of shows that, like, just because, you know, we've been blessed, now we can even say more, okay, Lord, how can I be more of your friend? How can I be more uh, committed to the people around me that I love? And so we can wax stronger and stronger in our humility and firmer and firmer in our faith. And the diagram sort of illustrates how that can be, um, you know, and, and it can also illustrate how, you know, people will go from blessings to then choosing pride and all the things that we normally see. But, um, but it can also show this incredibly wonderful, optimistic ideal that we can, we can constantly choose humility. Lord, how can I be more humble? How can I be more friendly? How can I be better connected to the people around me so that I can enjoy all the blessings that you have for me? So That is fascinating. Sean, that's amazing. I never thought of it in that regard. Um, I know, I think I understand motives behind humility. But I never thought really about pride as a choice. Uh, I've, I've always thought of it as something you fall into, you know, like you accidentally become, I tripped over pride and yeah. fell right in it. But what, what is the motivation behind pride? Like what, 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 what do people hope to get out of pride? Okay. So, so I'll, I'll give you a sense of this and this, this, this kind of might work. Um, I wish that I would have put a chapter in the book about humor. Um, and its relationship with humility, right? Mm. Um, and I really, I really like satire because I like how satire can exaggerate certain things so that we can see a truth that we might not otherwise see, right? Yeah. So, um, so there's a satirical blog. They have an article called "The Spirit World Update: More Buddhists Sent to Work with the Mormons." So the article is all about how, you know, our heavenly parents have decided that they need to send more Buddhists to work with Mormons, you know, to work with more members of the church. And um, so they go and they, they, you know, they, they teach members of the church about um, attachment and about how that leads to a lot of suffering. And some members embrace it, some don't. They teach about meditation. Um, they also teach about like, like evil, like the nature of evil, because there's this Buddhist notion that 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 you know evil isn't something to always sort of run from it's something to understand and examine you know sometimes these like temptations are they're just a wave and you don't have to fight against it you just you can just you can just observe it and watch it sort of wash over you and then just let it go and then move on right um you don't you don't have to fight against these all the time and um, so the article sort of talks about that, but, you know, some of the members reject that because they're like, no, we got to keep the stage full of good stuff all the time. Um, and, you know, and so, so, you know, some are sort of willing to accept this Buddhist idea and some aren't. Well, one, one thing that's, that's interesting about the, 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 the satirical piece, at least for me, is this like, you know, sometimes if I see someone who's Buddhist, I'm like, oh, they're on the other team. You know, and like, uh, you know, mm. we're, we're on this team and they're on that team. And so I don't see them initially just as a friend. I see them as a competitor, as somebody who's, you know, again, sort of on the other team. And and when you have any in any way that sort of us versus them mentality, that sort of competitive thing, um, then that's pride. You know, instead yeah. of 
instead of saying like, you are my, you, you are another child of our wonderful heavenly parents. They've given you insights that, that I might not have. And, um, and, and I might have a lot of blind spots that you have 2020 vision for, um, you know, that's the humble response, but, but it's, it's just, it's, it's easy to not do that. It's easy to just choose to be like, no, you're the enemy. You're on the other team. You're wrong. I, I, I like to see people who believe differently than me and tell them that I see you as an equal and then pray thanking God that I'm better than them. Is that, <laughs> is that, I, does that fall under pride? Like, I, is that, that's okay. Right. Well, I, wish there were, I, I wish there were scriptures that would inform us about whether or not that's okay. <laughs> I, I hope, I hope that you did never do this on your mission, but I will admit that there were times when I was like, Lord, give them a natural disaster. So they'll repent and join the church. <laughs> uh, like, like Chile doesn't need any more natural disasters. No, they don't need me no. praying for more of those. I, you know, but I, and just, just, yeah. Just things like that. And and it's easier when you're a missionary because you're like, everybody's kind of an enemy. Um, you know, it's it's but it's it's a very understandable situation when you're when you're that age. You know, yeah. it can be an age where everything's sort of black and white and the mission field is sort of conducive to this. I'm on the right team, I'm here to fix you. Um, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm not here to listen to you. So I, I also think and there's good evidence to support that the church has really strengthened this notion between stuff like bring what you have, you know, that whole message of bring what you have, we'll bring what we have and let's see where it meets up. These interfaith councils that we're all a part of now. Whereas when I was on my mission, you know, we would, we would study as a companionship trying to divine what religion they were talking about when they were talking about harlots and, you know, and, and horrible things. And it was like, Oh, this means this religion is this, and this is why this is, you know, and, and now I think inevitably you had a companion and inevitably you had a companion who said, that's the university of Utah. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's it elder. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not it. Oh, that's great. Give us your best. What's the best advice to be humble other than having children? Because that will humble you <laughs> naturally. How can we be, how can we embrace humility, true humility? The book is called Humility, a Practical Approach, because it was written for actual human beings to read. Um, and I hope that the stories, you know, actually outline this pretty well. Um, one idea is um, cilantro. I don't know if you like cilantro. Or I not. love cilantro. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm into cilantro. this. Oh. See, I'm into this already. I could eat cilantro straight oh, up. Gosh. It is a weed that tastes like soap. See, um, that's, I've heard people say that. I smother tacos oh, in cilantro. Oh, it's it my ruins favorite. everything. It oh, ruins it's the everything. Best. So there's actually a genetic reason for this. Mm. Um, there is a, you have to be able to smell a particular smell in order to like the taste of cilantro. Hmm. And if you can't smell that, it just tastes like soap. Um, wow. And yeah. And it, and it absolutely tastes like soap to me. And um, so, so, but so like, so like, if you like cilantro, you're like, how could everybody not love cilantro? Right. But if you hate right. cilantro, you're like, what is wrong with these people? And this is why cilantro is such a, an important thing, because we have to be able to really listen to one another. Um, and we have to be able to say, okay, this is delicious to you. It's not delicious to me, but 
but I value my relationship with you and I value the community that we can build together by me listening to you, really listening to you and in this, in this wholehearted, friendly, respectful way. Mm. Um, so I think that when you talk about humility as it impacts our, our entire community, I think that that's when you just think about cilantro, you know, that, yeah. And, and again, the, the chapter that talks about humility and talking about politics that starts with, you know, Chile, uh, that's what, that's one of its main points is about cilantro. Uh, I, I think you're right. I love this idea that I like it. Ergo it's good. And so it's good. Ergo, I need to fight for it. Well, and, and that's the way morality is like certain things are just delicious to us. And certain things don't taste good. So, and and the chapter talks about this quite a bit. If you're conservative, respecting authorities, respecting taboos, um, being loyal to your group, those things are incredibly delicious to you. So this whole idea that like, I'm a member of the only true church, we have a living prophet on the earth, these are all really delicious. If you're liberal, those are not as delicious to you. They're a little bit like cilantro to people who don't like cilantro because mm. they seem kind of exclusive. They seem like we're trying to say that like we're better than other people and that we've cornered the market on this, right? Um, and so, so they don't taste as delicious. And it isn't because it isn't because conservatives are Pharisees, and it isn't because liberals are just you know faithless relativists. It's because morality tastes different to different people. Um, and when we understand that and respect that, then we can see how, you know, again, so-and-so can have 20-20 vision for my blind spots, um, but not if I don't love them enough to listen to them. Mm. Sean, this is just brilliant. I, uh, you were kind enough to send me a copy of the book, for which I'm very grateful. I can't wait to sit down and pour through it, especially knowing you a bit now. I'm just dying to read it. Uh, I know that by now, so many of our listeners are dying to read it. Where is the best place to find the book? And tell us again the title of it. So the title is Humility, A Practical Approach. And um, it's published by By Common Consent. And the best place to get it is just on Amazon. So what's next? What's the next book? So uh, <laughs> coming out uh, sometime this year, um, there's another press that's publishing a book that I wrote called Can Laughter Make the World a Better Place? Um, and this goes through how, no, laughter cannot make the world a better place. I mean, sexist, uh, racist, abusive, stereotyping laughter is, is awful. Um, we see how it, you know, you can measure how bad a relationship is by the sort of cold, brittle, sarcastic humor in a couple. I mean, you're just like, oh, you people need to quit. Um, and then, so, but maybe it can, you know, sometimes laughter can, can open up new perspectives or sometimes it can prevent, pr provide new ideas. Um, and then sometimes laughter can really be this delightful thing that persuades us to see life better, to, to connect with others. Um, and so in that respect, yes, it can make the world a better place. So it's divided into those three sections. And, and again, it uses, it uses paintings and films and television shows and there's a chapter on dad jokes nice yeah. <laughs> yeah there's there's a there's a big gospel theme there as well as i've studied you know i think we have a tendency to think of we have a tendency to jump to loud laughter as anything that makes fun of sacred things 
But loud laughter is much more than that. It's anything that's offensive to God. I actually wrote an article for BYU Studies called On Mormon Laughter. And um, the article starts with that. Like, what, what does that phrase mean, especially in the context of the Doctrine and Covenants? Um, and then it talks about some other. There's a really, really fascinating experience that Elder Busha had um, as a mission president relative to laughter um, that is really, really interesting. That's how the, that's how, how the article ends. Um, and he just talks about how, he talks about, for example, how Satan doesn't understand laughter. You know, the, the joy that can be involved in laughter, the, uh, all of that is, is just something that Satan doesn't, doesn't comprehend at all. Fascinating. So, yeah. yeah. It's fun. Well, I can't wait to check it all out and all the things that come from uh, your amazing brain. I think it's just awesome, Sean. Appreciate it. This has been fantastic. We're going to wrap things up with the question we ask all of our guests. And that is, Sean, what does being a member of the church mean to you? So um, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the gravitational center of my life. Everything in my life orbits around that. And um, it, it either finds its rightful place or it just veers off and flies off into space. Um, I, I am super grateful to be a member and the way that we do, we do wards here on, you know, here um, because I, I get to know such a variety of people and the opportunity to serve them and to, to, to see the gospel in action in their lives. is just, it's, it's just really wonderful. I, Earlier this week, I had a I had a friend that passed away, mm. um, and um, you know he he had he had struggles like we all do, and it was it was amazing to see his courage and the way he would do things. And then, it just these last few days, it's you know, just seeing the ward coming together to support his loved ones who survived, and to get everything together for the viewing tomorrow and the 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 funeral on Saturday. Um, it's just I just feel really grateful to be part of part of this community. Mm. Beautiful answer. He is a husband, a father, a writer, a teacher, a master of humility, and uh, just an all-around good guy. Sean Tucker, thanks for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. It was absolutely a pleasure. And my special thanks to my guest, Sean Tucker. Uh, What an amazing guy. I really enjoyed it. And you can see why. And again, I want to thank uh, my friend Peter Breinholt for recommending that I connect with Sean. It was just a fantastic experience getting to talk with Sean. He's one of those guys I could pick his brain for hours. He just has brilliant insight. What a good man. Uh, this week in my Latter-day life, uh, I had a funny experience. I had landed from a flight. I was at the airport. And I park off-site away from the airport. So I have to take the shuttle over. And uh, as I got on the shuttle, I was feeling good. I was really happy to have uh, gotten home. I was ready to get into get home and get into my own bed that night, not in a hotel. And I, I sat down as I normally do. And sometimes I have a tendency to, you know, put in my AirPods and, and not talk. But for whatever reason, I was in a good mood. I sat down and there was a woman sitting across from me. And I said hello to her. And this particular person, parking lot that we use uh, they have bottles of water in a little cooler there on on the shuttle and so I reached over and grabbed a bottle of water and I looked at the woman it was kind of dark I couldn't see her super well but I said 
hey, would you like a bottle of water? She said, sure, that'd be great. I handed her a bottle of water and we made a little bit of small talk. You know, isn't it great to be home? Yeah, it was great to be home. Where were you and where were you? And then she kind of looked at me funny and she said, do you host a podcast? And I said, yes. And she said, Latter-day Lives? And I said, yes. <laughs> and uh, we just started laughing. And she said, oh, my gosh, I recognize you from your voice, which I think is funny because uh, I feel like I sound different when I'm recorded. But uh, apparently I sound enough the same that she knew me. And we had a wonderful conversation. We talked about some of the episodes. She told me about her family and her life. And we just had this great conversation. And it was so fun to meet a listener. But it only happened because I opened my mouth and I said something and she opened her mouth and we talked. And gosh, how many opportunities to get to know people uh, do we miss out on because we're looking down at our devices or we're quieter. We don't want people to think we're weird or whatever it is. And it reminds me also of a time uh, on that same company's shuttle bus. A few years ago, I had a really funny experience. It actually began just before Thanksgiving. And this must have been, ugh, this was a long time ago. I don't even want to guess at how many years ago, but many, many years ago. And I got this random text just before Thanksgiving. And it, said, it was a group text from a number I didn't know. And it said, hey, you know, we, we uh, have all the assignments for Thanksgiving. You're bringing this and you're bringing that. And and it said, you know, at one point, Ashley, you're bringing uh, the stuffing or whatever. And I'm looking at this going, who are all these people? <laughs> I didn't recognize them at all. And I hadn't had the number that long. And I quickly put together, oh, it must be the person who had this number before. So I replied to the group and said, hey, sorry, somehow I ended up in your group. But, uh, you know, I won't, I won't be participating. But I wanted you to know for whoever you were trying to reach. And then someone replied and said, very funny, Ashley, you're not getting out of this. You're bringing the stuffing. You know, you're coming. <laughs> I had to reply and say, guys, I don't want you to be without stuffing. I promise I'm not Ashley. Uh, I'm actually a man in his probably, you know, early 40s or late 30s at the time. And, I, you know, I'm a man and I'm not Ashley. And they still didn't believe me. I guess Ashley's quite a joker. And they said, Ha ha, Ashley, seriously, bring the stuffing. I finally replied and said, what do I need to do to prove to you that I'm not Ashley? <laughs> and one of them replied and said, send us a photo uh, of yourself. And it was something specific. And I don't remember what it was, but it was holding up something so that they couldn't just go find it on Google. And so sure enough, I went and grabbed whatever it was that they had me do <laughs> And I sent the photo and one person replied and said, oh, no, we're so sorry. It really isn't Ashley. And I replied back and, you know, there was no FaceTime or anything like that back then. And so I just replied back and said, yeah, it really isn't Ashley. This is, you know, it's me. And then somebody said, hey, are you a comedian? <laughs> and I replied and said, yes. And they said, uh, were you on Latter-day Night Live? And I said, yes. And then they all started chiming in about, hey, we watched that as a family. We know you. And it was just kind of this funny back and forth, at which point somebody said, hey, do you want to come to Thanksgiving dinner? <laughs> 
And my wife and I were going out of town, and I said, other than that, if we weren't going out of town, we would have loved to have joined this family. And we had the funniest round of texts, and we continued texting a little bit, and then it trailed off. Well, the following year, I got a text right before Thanksgiving from the same woman who had texted and just said, hey, we just wanted you to know you're always welcome to Thanksgiving. We were all just laughing about what had happened the year before. And I again thanked her and we were again going out of town. And But it was just wonderful. These were such good people. Probably six or seven years after that, I was on once again that airport shuttle and I was sitting there and this guy was just staring at me, just looking at me. And he said, are you Sean Rapier? And I said, yes. And I was like, I don't know this guy at all. And he turned to his, obviously his parents and said, that's the guy. That's the comedian. Remember Thanksgiving? Their whole family had gone on this big cruise. Seven or eight of them that were on that text chain were all there on the same shuttle bus. Oh, how we laughed and we had such a good time reminiscing. We got off the shuttle and took a photo together, apparently to send Ashley And it was just this great moment. And once again, I could have been rude. I could have blocked them. I could have done whatever. But sometimes just opening our mouths and just not worrying about what's everyone going to think or do I have time for this. Connections with people are really what matters. And I do really want to thank that listener. It just made my night, you know, getting to meet one of our listeners and uh, that family. Oh, that was so much fun. And the more we open our mouths and the more we just say hi to people, the more we connect with people, the better our lives are. I rarely regret having a conversation with someone and getting to know someone. It's a blessing for me, and I hope it's a blessing for them. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day Life. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. We really appreciate it. Do you know someone who would enjoy the show, who could use uplifting messages from our guests if you would share it with them or share it on facebook whatever you can do we we really appreciate it the latter-day lives podcast was produced by gene chittister social media by skylar fleming i've been your host sean rapier i think that's all we got for you this week so until we meet again there's a great big beautiful world out there go be in it just not of it thanks for listening (laughs) 